Welcome, everybody. Uh, apologies for the delay. Our speaker is in high demand and was at Parliament this afternoon. And so we're actually very happy that uh, she's willing to come to the London School of Economics as well. I'm Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the London School of Economics. And uh, my job is to introduce the speaker and make a couple announcements. Uh, the first announcement is always to ask everybody to either turn their mobile phone off or put it on silence. Uh, this message, message is not always effective, but I hope it, it will be this evening. Uh, but if you do want to use your mobile phone to tweet, is that the hashtag is LSE Prince, which is usually on the slide. This is also on the slide. Uh, if technology doesn't let us down, we, we'll make an audio podcast available on the LSE Events webpage. Um, there will be time for questions and questioning from, from the audience. Uh, and after the event, there's the opportunity to buy the book and to get it signed. Um, and so the only thing left is to introduce our speaker. So we're very happy to have uh, Nomi Prince. Uh, our speaker started her career actually in the financial sector and worked at you know, prestigious financial institutions like Goldman Sachs, but she really made a name for herself as the writer of author, as the, as the writing of articles uh, of, uh, in several prestigious newspapers, and she has written several books. Uh, some of them were praised quite highly, like in newspapers like the Financial Times, and today she's here to introduce her new book, Collusion. So please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming tonight. I'm going to stand here and I'll move a little bit. I've got two mics on me, so I'm, 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 I'm well prepped for being heard. So, um, but, but thank you very much again. Um, thank you for that introduction. Thank you, LSE. Um, I did start my life in my career in Wall Street. Um, and one of the places that I worked was Lehman Brothers, which um, doesn't exist anymore. Another place I worked was Bear Stearns, which doesn't exist anymore, um, as well as Chase and Goldman Sachs, which both exist and are doing really quite well. So, so that's kind of my 50-50 on that. But when I was at Lehman Brothers, um, I was also going to graduate school um, at NYU, downtown New York City, and um, I was studying statistics and operations research in Stern Business School. Um, and I was also working like 27 hours a day at Lehman Brothers. And one of the things that I was doing back then was I was working um, on analytics for central banks. Um, and I will talk more about central banks today, but this is kind of the full circle of how life works from graduate school to being in front of you guys, which is that I was developing this product at Lehman Brothers to allow central banks to buy more treasury bonds or government bonds from Lehman Brothers, which was a primary dealer, one of the banks that was given treasury bonds by the U.S. Treasury Department, by the U.S. government to sell to investors, sell throughout the world, and so forth. And a way for Lehman Brothers to make more money than simply selling these very plain, boring government bonds um, was to develop other things around the bonds um, futures, options, other kinds of slightly more complex securities back then, not so much now. They've become more complex. Um, and if we could package them together, we could make money on both sides. And the buyers of treasury bonds tended to be central banks. 
And so as I was just developing the, re the analytics, um, there was a sales team that would go out and promote this product and try to sell it to central banks. And so I would be the geeky person doing the programming and the analytics and making sure the numbers worked out. Um, and then he would be the person who would just be all you know, dashing and promotional and try to get a lot of money into Lehman Brothers and central banks to buy this product. So we didn't get along. Um, and I was at sort of a stage in my career where I wanted um, the work that I did to be noticed, as we all might do. Um, and so I went to senior management and I said, you know, they're all my analytics. He's selling them. He's taking all the credit. He's acting like he did the analytics when it was me. Um, I just don't want to work with him. And he basically went to senior management and said, I won't tell you the language he used, but she, he just basically said it was irritating to him. So management's solution to this was to send us on a trip around Southeast Asia together. <laughs> and whoever won, <laughs> if we both came back alive, that, that was good. And actually, there was a whole little episode in the Philippines where I thought neither of us would come back alive, but it did bond us. Um, but one of the places that we went to was China. Um, to Beijing back in the early 90s when it was considered you know, a, a very up-and-coming place in terms of finance. Um, it's still sort of considered that, but just in a different way. Um, then it was really nascent. Um, and so we went to the, meet with the People's Bank of China, and I got to explain the analytics on a blackboard at the People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, and he got to do all the sort of theatrics about it. And then afterwards, uh, we went out for dinner with the people of the Central Bank of China, and we all sort of bonded. The reason I bring this up is because decades later, um, this book actually took me back to Beijing um, and to the Great Wall of China, um, where I had been back then as the like two hours we had free during this exposition across Southeast Asia um, to sell this product. And so when I went to China in this book as I went to other places to analyze what central banks are doing today, what they've done since the financial crisis, what that has meant to economies on the ground throughout the world, um, I kind of created a, a loop there and, and went back full circle uh, to Beijing, and that was kind of interesting. It was different people at the People's Bank of China, um, but certainly the impetus of central banks being involved in each other's bond markets um, and each other's government bond markets has only expanded since then. And the collusion that I will talk to you about throughout the next 40 or so minutes is a way in which they have come to terms, sometimes not liking each other, sometimes liking each other, central banks across the world, and how they have basically worked together or colluded together in terms of um, creating a central bank policy, a monetary policy that has produced effectively 0% interest rates still on average over the last 10 years in the major developed countries, um, and a little bit higher on average in other countries that are either developing or, in the case of China, growing um, to a substantial economic superpower over those years. So the book, though, started a few years ago. I was asked to speak at the Federal Reserve in Washington. There's um, a meeting that they have every year between the central bankers of the Fed, central bankers throughout the world, the IMF, and the World Bank. And they get together, and it's a, it's a private meeting for three days, and every day it takes place at one of their offices. So it's the Fed day one, IMF day two, World Bank day three, and the idea is to talk about whatever this particular problem is that the conference revolves around. And when I was asked to talk in, February, in um, the summer, of 2015, the topic was, why isn't Wall Street helping Main Street? 
So now I have written, um, if some of you have read any of my stuff, a little bit critically on central banks. Um, so when I was asked to speak at the Fed, I asked back, do you have the right person? Um, and they said, no, we definitely have the right person. We, we, we want to get a sort of alternative perspective on everything we've done working really well. So I'm like, okay. So I go to the first day of this, this uh, conference at the Federal Reserve, and uh, there's a few people who speak before me. One is Janet Yellen, who was the former chairperson of the Federal Reserve. And she gets up and welcomes all the central bankers from around the world in the room where the Fed sets interest rates or sets the cost of money um, for the U.S. and subsequently, as we've had over the last 10 years, for the rest of the world. Um, so there we're sitting, and she's saying, you know, the banks are fine. Yes, it's been eight years since the financial crisis, but things are good. There's, there's sort of no chance of um, us having a too big to fail, us having another financial crisis. We've got this. Um, and I'm sitting there in my chair thinking, okay, wait. <laughs> wait to get up and explain your side. Um, and then the Assistant Treasury Secretary of Domestic Affairs gets up and says basically the same thing, um, that financial system is fine, it's intact, everything's working, um, and there's no chance of, of a financial crisis. So then this cardinal gets up, and um, he doesn't talk about monetary policy or financial crisis or banks or anything. He's just like flown in from the Vatican, like the night before, he's 82, he kind of gets up, gets in front of everybody, and he says, um, <laughs> he pauses and he says, you should remember the poor. And there's these looks of just discomfort uh, throughout the room. And, and these looks at each other of central bankers, like, what are we supposed to do with this advice? Um, and then I get up. And um, I say, look, the main question that we have here today that you, know, you've, you, you want to develop a session around is why Wall Street banks, why Wall Street isn't helping Main Street um, after the financial crisis and based on all the help you've given Wall Street. And uh, so I get up and I say, well, this is really simple. The reason Wall Street's not helping Main Street is because you never made them. You basically gave them a whole pile of money. And the guidance was no guidance. The guidance was you have multiple trillions of dollars at your disposal and we will not tell you what to do with it. And so to come back eight years later and wonder why that money hasn't necessarily seeped in to the regular economy, hasn't seeped into raising wages or producing long-term strategic economic growth or developing infrastructure um, is because that was never part of the game. That was never part of the plan. So now going back to the financial crisis of 2008, um, what happened was the major banks sold a bunch of assets that weren't valued at the level at which they said they were valued. So effectively, they were rated very highly um, by rating agencies that were paid by the banks to rate them highly. But inside these assets were sort of deteriorating subprime mortgages. That's kind of old history. But what wound up happening was when the banks went to the Treasury Department and the New York Fed president, who was Timothy Geithner at the time, got together with the Fed chair, who was Ben Bernanke at the time, and the Treasury secretary, who was Hank Paulson, at the time, who had been the CEO and chairman of Goldman Sachs, one of the four banks I worked at that has not gone under and is doing very well, they decided that in order to save the economy, they had to do something to save the banks. And so they did two things. They created a little package of $700 billion of bailout money from, that Congress, U.S. Congress had to approve. 
And then ultimately, over 10 years, they created $4.5 trillion of subsidies that the Fed provided the banking system. So what started as an emergency process, what started as a bunch of huddles over Sunday nights, was the Fed developing a monetary policy where they reduced rates to zero, and they started producing money or increasing money supply, injecting sort of fabricated, electronically conjured money into the banking system in return for government bonds and mortgage bonds. And then they exported that process called quantitative easing, which is basically saying we're going to put lots of money into the market and not ask for anything in return. Um, And they exported that across the major central banks of the world. So they exported that to um, the European Central Bank, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, BOJ, the, the Bank of England, and to a lesser extent, the People's Bank of China, but that's kind of a separate example, and I'll talk about how they actually use the money. In the process today, they have created $21 trillion worth of money um, that's predominantly gone to and still goes to buying financial assets, buying bonds and stocks out of the markets through banks or corporations across these particular areas and a little bit Switzerland, and a little bit, tiny little bit Canada. So basically, the major countries in the world, their central banks follow the procedure of the Fed, which was to say we need to, in this emergency, produce money, and in this emergency, create a, a moving banking system. And that will somehow create economic stability. But what wound up happening was, over the course of those 10 years that followed, it was discovered that the banks had committed a lot of crimes going into the financial crisis. So the top six banks in the U.S., for example, uh, had to pay ultimately on the sort of crimes or frauds they committed, $110 billion. Now, if you're getting $4.5 trillion, $110 billion, hmm, it's not so much. But the point was they weren't weren't fundamentally restructured. They weren't fundamentally uh, made smaller. They They basically grew in size since the financial crisis. And they have been and continue to be subsidized by Federal Reserve policy. Now, what I did in my book is I went back to the beginning of the financial crisis through basically today. Um, And I looked at a bunch of pivot regions, or what I call pivot regions around the world, to see how the policy that the Fed created and exported and required or or colluded with certain central banks to do throughout the world um, either was adopted or rejected by different regions throughout the world and how that sort of impacted all those different regions. So one of the first places I went to was Mexico. And the reason I did that, I spent a lot of time in Mexico working with um, people in the government there and institutions on looking at financial regulation. Because in general, if financial risk is imposed on an economy, on, on citizens, on people, it comes from the banks. It comes from the major institutions with the money. And like the U.S., Mexico has a very concentrated banking system in that five or six banks basically um, run the financial assets of the country. It's not dissimilar here. It's not dissimilar in the U.S. So, you know, there's, a, there's a consolidated set of banks that own most of the deposits or or current accounts or whatever it might be in a particular country. And with that, they get to demand a lot of things in a a, a crisis. Um, Certainly they did in the U.S. Mexico was in the situation in the beginning of 2008 where they were actually doing quite well as an economy. And the head of the central bank there, um, a man named Guillermo Ortiz, was, was very much into balancing monetary policy, the cost of money, into the banks, into the economy, with how well the economy was doing. So if prices went up, 
inflated, um, he would basically move rates up as well so that he would make sure that generally the cost of things stayed affordable to, to people. And the economy was growing and everything was doing okay. The financial crisis hits out of the U.S. and all of a sudden the banking sector is decimated. Um, money stops flowing into Mexico and Mexico at first and he at first says, you know what, we're still going to be okay. This is not our problem. Which a lot of countries for a minute said throughout the world in the fall of 2008. It's, it's not our problem. It's a U.S. thing. Yeah, there's some interdependent banks. It'll be helped. We'll get through this. But the reality was that wasn't the case. And so over the next few months, Mexico's economy, like the U.S. economy, like the UK, UK economy, like economies throughout Europe and so forth, started to really tank. And so Guillermo Ortiz goes to Washington, and he has a conversation with Ben Bernanke, who's the chair of the Federal Reserve. And he says, Ben, I've been here. There was this crisis in 1994 in Mexico. And the peso got smashed, our currency got smashed, our banking system was decimated, a lot of people lost their credit, a lot of people lost their jobs, and it took us years to recover from that. And if you don't handle this properly, if you don't instill confidence in the financial system for the people of the country, ultimately this, this will end badly. And this is covered by the Wall Street Journal and other you know, major reputable papers are, are covering this, this visit, this historic visit of someone who went through it. Um, from a central bank coming to someone who's about to go through it potentially um, and, and offering that kind of advice as a sort of neighborly thing to do. And Ben Bernanke completely ignores him now, to the point where he doesn't even mention the guy in his memoirs. He's just, you know, thanks. Um, I've got this. And he basically starts to embark upon this quantitative easing or this cheap money policy for the next 10 years. Ortiz starts to kind of poke at the sides of, of the U.S. and U.S. policy for a while and, and get very public. And he starts to go to different places around the world, G7 meetings and so forth, and to basically warn, and this is all over the next few months after the financial crisis, um, that things can get a lot worse. And, and he knows what the Fed policy is going to be because it's already started. It's already said zero interest rates are already starting. Cheap money is already starting. The banking system is effectively being subsidized. Um, and he fears this could go really wrong at some point. Um, and what happens is other countries start to basically feel the same way. And as a result, in the beginning of um, 2009 through 2011, a lot of developing countries started talking to each other um, about how they could defend themselves economically and, and from a monetary policy perspective um, from any kind of additional crisis from the U.S., from the dollar, from any sorts of subsidies to a banking system that they weren't involved in. Um, and that's kind of how a lot of the world started changing. Um, Guillermo Ortiz winds up losing his job, <laughs> not getting reappointed to the head of the central bank in Mexico because he basically crossed that U.S. policy. Um, and so the person that wound up replacing him instead was a man named Augustin Carstens, who ultimately also left that position, but for, for a time being really adopted the U.S. position and said, you know what, we do need to reduce rates. We do need to do what the U.S. is doing. We do need to um, sort of complement what's happening with our neighbor so that we can basically keep the streams of money going back and forth. And if it happens to hurt or create inflation to our country, we'll sort of deal with that later, which is what wound up happening. So he stays there for a while. Um, but this policy keeps going and going and going, and ultimately um, he starts to get very concerned about it and starts to talk against it as well. He's now head of the Bank of International Settlements um, in Switzerland, which is the central bank of central banks, because he couldn't really, he tried to go against Fed policy at a point at which rates were very low, money was very cheap coming out of the U.S. He started to raise rates in Mexico to help with inflation in Mexico to sort of tame the price appreciation that money creates. And he wound up basically 
having bad interactions with the U.S. sort of, although he's still part of the, the central bank community, central bank or community at the top of that system, he winds up going to the Bank of International Settlements. But he did take Mexico into a sort of more independent role relative to the Federal Reserve, and that had the extra side effect of keeping, elevating Mexico in, in respect to sort of the global economy from the standpoint of determining uh, how national monetary policy works. The other country I went to was Brazil. And I went to Brazil in the middle of a complete you know, political crisis. Um, there, one government was being overthrown, another government was um, being stepped, uh, basically put in. But the reason for it, which I found, was that it was central bank policy. When the US was reducing rates, making money cheap in Brazil, they were trying to figure out what to do. And the head of the bank at the time wanted to go with the U.S. The other bank didn't. The guy who wanted to go with the U.S. ultimately lost his job. But now he's running for president of Brazil. I'm, very, I'm summarizing Brazil. Um, which is to say that countries outside of the U.S. Who, who didn't adopt the same cheap money policy, the same quantitative easing methods of the Federal Reserve, tended to not do as well economically and from a trade perspective and from a sort of joint geopolitical perspective until they followed along. Right now, the level of rates in Brazil is lower than the level of rates in Mexico, which is kind of the first time this has happened um, in relationship between those two countries. And what that means is that Brazil has adopted the US policy over the last year and a half in such a strong way, and Mexico has basically stepped back from US rate policy that geopolitically they've totally swapped uh, swap points. So that's to say that the way that you set the cost of money also determines the way in which governments connect with each other. Um, the other place I went to was Japan. And Japan's interesting because they actually started quantitative easing back in 2001. They had a banking crisis. And what they did was they put an emergency policy together with the expectation it would just be for an emergency period of time, not for 10 years. Um, although their economy hasn't done very much in, well, almost 20. But, but at the time, they adopted something called quantitative easing as well. They fused money into their banking system, but they asked the banks for something in return. Um, they regulated the banks. They reduced the amount of risk they could take. They enforced the savings accounts that they had. And they created just a, just a more serene version of banking with their help with their subsidy of quantitative easing or of injected money. And that has actually created a fact where there has been no banking crisis emanating from Japan ever since. Now, when the US adopted their monetary policy in 2008, they kind of did the opposite. Again, they subsidized all of these banks that committed all of these crimes, and they're continuing to subsidize them, and to a very substantial <coughs> amount. But what it gave Japan the opportunity to do um, is, is work with the US on monetary policy on the level of cheap interest rates, but also start to poke around itself in the region and see who else they could sort of partner with from a trade perspective, from a political perspective, from a diplomatic perspective, and they found China. So back to the People's Bank of China. China did not do what the US did in terms of its rates. In fact, one of the reasons China has risen to such an extent over the last 10 years from, a, from an economic perspective is they more loudly than Mexico, and with a bigger economy than Mexico, started getting really critical from 2009 through particularly 2012 of this policy of just dumping money into the banking system, seeing it elevate stock markets and bond markets and, and create all sorts <coughs> of bubbles throughout the world, and, and was very critical that that could end badly because there was no real value. There was simply money chasing financial assets, but there was no value being created. Um, and the former head, 
of the People's Bank of China, uh, a man named Governor Zhao, he got very public for the first time in sort of the history of the People's Bank of China in terms of criticizing the U.S. And it was kind of historic because all of a sudden he's got Latin America and sort of Central America um, on the side of, well, you know, the U.S. is doing this policy and they're effectively subsidizing their crooked banking system, which is how it was interpreted. Um, Then that creates risk, that creates dollar risk, that creates potential financial risk in the future. Um, And China was very critical of this. But what happened was China wasn't kind of ignored the same way that um, Guillermo Ortiz had been ignored in the beginning of the crisis. China started working more closely with the IMF and more closely with getting its currency to sort of be elevated, um, nowhere near where the dollar is, but, but elevated in terms of the way it could be used in international trade, diplomatic relationships, and they started creating their own version of QE. But they did it in a really different way. What they did was they criticized the, the U.S. version, um, which was exported at this point to Japan and, and also the European Central Bank, the ECB and the Bank of England. Um, they, they used it, they deflected that money. So going back to the question I was asked at the Fed, why isn't Wall Street helping Main Street? And my answer, because you never made them. China did something different. They actually decided where the money that the central bank was creating was going to go. And so it was going to go to you know, high-speed railway, to green energy projects, to, to wind, to solar, to development across the Southeast Asian region of buildings, of ports, of canals, and effectively in that process create diplomatic relations as well. Um, And that's something they're still doing. So the RCEP, um, which is a sort of regional trade agreement of which China is one of the main proponents, is something that came out of the sort of criticism of the U.S. creating cheap money and exporting this process throughout the world and sort of inflating asset values and not real economic growth. Um, And that's really how they've continued to elevate themselves politically as well as economically, as well as from a monetary policy perspective. Their idea is longer-term strategic growth. They have reasons for it, but that's what they're financing. Um, Europe is kind of a a different situation, and also the U.K., because what Europe did was it it went lock-stock with the U.S. um, from about the second year of the crisis. What happened in the first year post the financial crisis was the former head of the European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Trichet, decided to raise rates, while the U.S. was bringing rates to zero. And that didn't sit well with the sort of world of central banks, um, and it didn't really sit well with how anybody thought of him. And ultimately, he was replaced uh, by the current European central bank head, uh, Mario Draghi. Now, Mario Draghi came from Goldman Sachs. Um, He was also the head of the central bank of Italy before he became the central banker for Europe. Italy was having a really, really rough time uh, when Mario Draghi left the Bank of Italy and went to the, sort of the more power seat position running the European Central Bank. And what he did was he not only reversed Jean-Claude Trichet's um, trajectory of raising rates and then ultimately lowering them, he, he crashed them down to negative. Um, and at the moment, the European Central Bank owns more assets or bonds on its book than the Fed. So he basically just totally surpassed the Fed from when he came in. Um, But European Central Bank did something a little different. The Fed bought, with the money it created, U.S. government bonds and the bad mortgage bonds that the banks had manufactured in the U.S. for which they had been slapped with criminal fines. In Europe, and still, you can go to the European Central Bank's website, um, they basically chose which corporate bonds to buy. 
Um, so different companies, the debt that's been created in the last 10 years with all of this cheap money, have also been subsidized by the European Central Bank, what the European Central Bank tends to do. And, and they, they're, pretty, they're probably the most transparent of the central banks in terms of where they're giving the money, is they decide which companies they will invest in. So they've become not simply an emergency lender to sort of patch over a financial crisis or a global financial crisis. They've become like a hedge fund. They've become like a, a portfolio manager of corporate bonds. And in the process, they've created money um, and chosen which corporations to, to effectively give that money to. Um, and that means that they've chosen which countries and corporations not to. So the sort of level of economic instability or inequality across countries in Europe um, was largely related to, as any situation, I mean, if some, one of you were given like a pile of money and the person sitting next to you were like not, um, one of you would be in a better position to spend it than the other person. And that's exactly what happened across Europe, is that the European Central Bank chose um, which companies to spend money on and which not to, which countries um, to buy their government bonds and which not to, which is one of the reasons that, for example, Greece is still trying to get out of its, um, its bailouts um, for the investors in Greece 10 years ago, um, and in return for that, having to sell off different pieces of Greece, um, ports, buildings, etc., um, in order to make good the payments on the bailout money they got, while at the same time the European Central Bank is buying corporate bonds from France or from Germany and so forth. So there were choices made with the pile of money that was created, and in the case of the European Central Bank, over $5 trillion worth of money um, in terms of who lived, who died, who got money, who didn't. Um, and that <coughs> created kind of an economic inequality in Europe that would not have been so pronounced um, had there not been this extra pool of money acting upon it. Um, in the UK, uh, to a similar extent, the Bank of England, um, which at the moment has about $600 billion worth of quantitative easing produced, um, which is low compared to the European Central Bank. The Bank of Japan's at like $5 trillion. Uh, Bank of England's pretty, pretty small, and it's used that money also to select um, which companies to buy, as well as um, buying a set of gilts of, 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 of government bonds as well, in return for manufacturing that money. So nowhere in that entire process um, has any of the money actually gone to the real economy. So I was on CNBC this morning talking about this, and um, it was interesting because at first... Um, the host was just, you know, talked about the book. You have this thing. You're talking about how banks colluded and how um, they helped private companies, in particular private banks, more than other banks. And there's, you know, all these trillions of dollars in the market. And it's created asset bubbles. It's elevated the price of stocks artificially, of bonds artificially. It's created more debt in the world. Um, but hasn't it also helped people? Hasn't it also helped growth? And going back to the Bank of England. So last week, Mark Carney, who's the head of the Bank of England, who, who was... Um, Prior to that, the uh, head of the Central Bank of Canada. So they, they do move around sort of to different central bank spots around the world. He reduced the growth forecast um, of economic growth in the UK. Uh, the Central Bank, the Bank of England also, having been pronounced as going to be raising rates now because there is economic growth, decided to hold rates. And the story was that growth has slowed down a little bit so therefore, rates don't need to be raised to sort of 
further slow down an economy because it's already doing pretty slowly on its own. Um, and all of the information that the Bank of England was producing was sort of brought down a notch. So I think one of the reasons for that is not simply because growth in the UK economy has slowed. If you look at the growth of all of the major economies relative to the major central banks that have produced the most amount of quantitative easing of conjured money, they're all doing pretty badly. On average, over the last 10 years, the US, the UK, most of Europe, but you know, you can kind of calibrate between, say, a Germany and a Greece, but basically most of Europe, the UK, the US, Japan, um, I'm missing. We can throw Switzerland in, Switzerland's part of Europe, but they have their own sort of central bank doing this, they just buy stocks. Um, but basically their growth has not been particularly good. For the most part on average it's been below 2%. For the most part on average inflation's been less than 1% across the major countries that have supposedly produced an emergency money creation policy that was supposed to inflate real prices and real growth. Absolutely none of that happened. And so when the Bank of England makes the announcement that even UK growth is going to be forecast below what they had already said in the beginning of the year, and in the beginning of the year, the majority of analysts who watch these things, who look at what the Bank of England or any central bank is going to do with rates, but particularly in the UK, like 85% of them said that the UK was going, the Bank of England was going to raise rates last week. Now, not only did they not raise rates last week, but the week before that, these, all these same people changed their minds. Um, so even when you look at what central banks do versus what they say before they do it, um, there's a lot of massaging of information and language going on. So the Fed in the US was the leader for quantitative easing. It was the leader in adopting this emergency policy, which has now lasted for 10 years, um, and lavishing all of this money onto the banking system and into the financial markets. It decided in late 2015, so not about six months after I was at that particular meeting at the Fed, to, to raise rates a little bit. So it raised rates by 25 basis points, from zero to 25 basis points, a quarter of a point. And then it said it was going to raise rates four times in 2016. It didn't. It raised rates once. And the reason for that was, in the beginning of 2016, the markets, the stock markets, not the economies, basically all tanked. And so a couple things happened after that. The European Central Bank came in, and it was the first time they cut their rates to negative. Basically, they're, they're, they're paying banks for the luxury of banks getting money from them. Um, and then the Bank of Japan also reduced rates to negative. And the idea of that was to flush the system with even more money in order to create growth and to basically lift the markets up, though that's not what they say they do. And that worked. And so for an entire year, the Fed, having forecast four rate moves, four rate hikes, raised once in December, a year later. In December 2016, they said they're going to raise rates by another three times in 2017. That they did. But in 2018, there's been a lot of wobbles between February and April in the U.S. stock market, which has created wobbles throughout other stock markets. As a result, the Fed did not raise rates the week before Bank of England didn't raise rates. Now the argument in the US was that inflation wasn't all of a sudden rising fast enough. Whereas a few months beforehand, when it raised rates in the beginning of the year in February, apparently it had been 
and then it apparently turned around. What actually happened was the market went down by 10%. The stock market went down by 10%. And so what the Fed also tends to do is now develop this role of watching financial markets and talking about helping the Main Street economy. And other central banks that have been on the same sort of collusion path um, have to kind of do the same thing. So although the Bank of England is looking at economic data in the UK, they also have to monitor what's going on in the US. And the ECB has to monitor what's going on in the US. And the Bank of Japan has to monitor what's going on in the ECB and so forth. So it continues to be a situation in the world now. We're 10 years after the financial crisis. Um, banks have been subsidized. Markets, for the most part, in stocks are at their highs. Debt is at an all-time high. The level of debt to GDP, to what the world produces, um, is about 2.3-2.4%. That means more than double the amount of debt is existing in the world to support what is produced in the world. So for everything that gets produced, every dollar of something that gets produced, two dollars of debt is backing that production. That, that's not an inherently stable position, but the reason it's developed that way is because rates are so low that borrowing is so easy until rates start to rise. So I think right now we're in this holding pattern where rates, the cost of money from the major countries, is not going to rise. It hasn't risen in 10 years. It's, it's basically zero. Growth is basically negligible. So if inflation is around one and growth is below two, we're basically talking about nothing having happened through this entire quantitative easing policy where $21 trillion of money has been injected into the financial markets. And they have risen. They have inflated. Um, but the real economy hasn't. So how does that end? Not well. <laughs> um, you know, there's only... Yeah, it's sort of, I think I used this example and then I took it back sort of because I thought it was troubling. It was really early this morning on CNBC, but it's like, you know, planes sort of hovering over Heathrow or something. And, you know, you need to do that holding pattern thing forever. And you're like, you want to land and you're still hovering. And, um, you know, you can either ultimately go down <laughs> at, the, at what you're supposed to do at a sort of regular uh, way or, or crash, but that wasn't what I was trying to point out in planes above Heathrow. I was just trying to point out that if you have such an inflated financial system and it's being held up by an artificial policy that was supposed to have been an emergency policy, if you remove the policy, the financial system crashes. If you find ways, because this is where we're at right now, to reduce the policy in such a way that it does what it was supposed to have done to begin with, which has helped the real economy, I utilize that debt, utilize that money into real purposes, and maybe there's a way to sort of land things um, in, a, in a gentler fashion where the goal is somewhat achieved. Wages can be elevated, production can be increased, infrastructure can be built, technology can be developed, and that money can be used for the purpose um, that the narration of why that money was created actually does. The banking system won't like that because they were the ones who got the money. Um, and, and there will be a pushback. But it would be a worse pushback by people in general if there were a financial crisis again, if there were a major crash. And the banks haven't had to be reformed or restructured. And so therefore, their requirements of a government, of a central bank, in the event of a crash, are much higher now than they were the last crash around. 
So the only way to sort of protect the general economy or actually grow the general economy is to utilize some of that money for that purpose um, and also restructure the banking system, which didn't happen 10 years ago, in such a way as to detach people's money and loans that banks are supposed to provide to individuals and to small businesses from the more speculative activity that has been financed by central banks. And if those two things can happen, um, that's a way to reduce the current um, hovering but dangerous position that central banks have, have created with respect to subsidizing the private banking system and the, and the markets. Um, and we can actually get back to somewhat some kind of a normal. That's not something that can happen in 10 minutes or two weeks or even a year. It's, it's actually a process that could take some time. Um, but one of the things I talk about in the book is that if we don't do that process, um, if, if central banks don't start to collude on the positive way out of this as opposed to be in denial um, as to the bubbles that they have created or at least publicly in denial and private they're not in denial um, that there are going to be some real ramifications to this policy which is now 10 years old. Um, so that's what I basically argue in, in the book. Um, the collusion itself um, that manifested this wash of bubbles, of, of debt, of stocks, of banks being supported, um, can equally be colluded back the other way. Um, but, but central bankers who have been at the front seat of this, um, who have had an unlimited sort of check to write to the financial system, to these assets, have to be willing to do that. So it's my hope that this, this book um, and these ideas can at least be discussed now so that we can uh, move towards at least removing the risk that this policy has incurred onto the world onto the main economies and do something to mitigate um, the potential for, for a real larger crisis to happen. Um, so that's what I came here to talk to you about tonight. Um, I would like to take your questions and thank you for listening. And um, I think my books are also going to be available here as well. So uh, thank you. Since this is quite a large room, we, we ask that you wait for, uh, to get a mic from one of the stewards. Um, you you want to collect a couple of questions? And then, yeah. Okay. I can stand up for a question. Um, you, see the, you seem to say that one of the requirements <clears throat> was to restructure the banks. Um, what would you see as necessary? Um, how would one restructure them? What are the requirements? that are needed for um, achieving that? Well, there, there's, there's two things. There's one is restructuring the, the, the formation of the banking system. So, for example, in the US, we, we had an act called the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which was created in the wake of the Great Depression, particularly because there had been a crash in 1929. It impacted the US. It impacted the world. Um, and the idea was, in order to give people confidence in the banking system, um, the government created an insurance policy for people's deposits. But in return for providing that, for providing confidence, for providing banks customers, um, they basically said to banks, you have to choose whether you're going to just simply deal with sort of the customers, sort of um, commercial part of banking, lending and, and taking in deposits or, or current accounts. Um, and that if you're going to produce or create new securities and trade them and speculate in them, you have to do that with your own capital. So effectively detach risk or speculation from people's money that's 
uh, backed by the government. Um, so the same thing, uh, you know, in a situation here, you, you would be removing the, the risk that a bank that can do other things besides just provide loans to small businesses or individuals and take in current accounts could do with the other side of their books. So you would effectively be dividing books out. But the second thing to do, because it's happened, um, and this is more of a requirement, going back to the why aren't Wall Street banks helping Main Street because you didn't make them, is to require at this point um, banks to take a look at the provisions they have been offered by central banks. Um, $21 trillion historically is nowhere, it's so far beyond a historical norm um, that we're in a completely unprecedented time in terms of what's been used to subsidize them, and say, look, and the the mix could be uh, allocated in different ways, but you need to give this much money for this level of small businesses or this much money for development or this much money for for a local uh, set of bank financings or or make the banks smaller and so have more smaller banks deal with localities or communities. There's different things to do, but effectively you'd be dividing out, you'd be requiring something in return for the money that was provided, and in return for that money would be elements of finance that actually help real growth and secure real people's deposits. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. It was very interesting. I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say that. Um, Could you explain exactly how it is that quantitative easing subsidizes the banks? it's my understanding that the majority of the, the bonds which central banks are buying are government bonds. Um, and thus, I presume that the banks selling those bonds are making some sort of a spread. But is it not primarily the governments that are receiving the subsidy? And thus, governments have some responsibility to use all of this cheap money that they have to sort of use fiscal policy to help stimulate the economy rather than what they actually did, which was use contractory and fiscal policy whilst you're having expansionary monetary policy, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Right. No, that's a good, that's a good uh, question to distinguish. So, so the way it, it works is that there's a set of private banks that, that deal in government securities. So, so for example, in the U.S., where, where quantitative easing started and had become so, so big so fast, um, the, it's, it's the bank's job to effectively receive government bonds from the U.S. government and then sort of sell them to investors, to countries, etc., and in that case, make a spread. Right? And then the end investors get interest from the government. So the idea is the government's borrowing money through the banks as intermediaries who find the sources of that money and the bank in ret- the government in return pays them interest. That's what happens. Now, of course, when interest is zero, the government can sort of continue to borrow money, as all governments have, which is why public debt relative to GDP everywhere is much higher than it was before zero interest rate policy. So it's enabled the governments to borrow more because they have to pay less for it. But what the Fed has done and what quantitative easing does is it takes the necessity of banks to find buyers or investors for those bonds and effectively gives them the money at, at whatever level those bonds are at the time. So rather than requiring banks to do anything with it and find end investors, it says, look, we'll deal with that later we're just gonna take the bonds off of you now. So now the Fed's given money directly to the banks that were dealers. Um, and this happens in corporates, but just you know, talking about the government bond side. It gives money to the banks that are dealers. The banks now have had no strings attached to that money, so for now, 
for that period, they go and do whatever they do with it. They buy their own stock, they, they issue higher dividends, they do all the things they've asked of central banks to do over the past 10 years. At some point, there would be a payback. But what's happened now is it's like the Fed has effectively given money to buy these government bonds. The government is actually paying interest to the Fed. It's small, or, or in the case of other central banks, negative or negligible. But the money has been produced to take those bonds from the dealers, which were the banks, without a requirement to give it back or find it anytime soon. And so that's one of the reasons that quantitative easing has expanded over this 10-year period, because it's been recreated and recreated and recreated so as to not take it back out of the system anytime soon. And with that, banks have been able to do things well, just, just do whatever they've done. So they haven't had a requirement to, to lend more or do the things that a government technically wants its bonds to finance. Thanks very much. It was most interesting. How long do you think the present situation will have to pertain before regulation is introduced? What do you think the regulation should be and who is most likely to introduce it? Um, so this, this holding pattern, um, I, I used to think, would be reduced when all of the central banks stopped at least quantitative easing, at least producing money in order to take securities out of the market and provide it into the market as opposed to real things. One of the things that happened in the last year and a half um, is that two central banks the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, who said at some point they will stop their quantitative easing um, policies, expended, extended them. And the Fed, who said they would stop its quantitative easing policy, <coughs> did, but not a lot. And so if you were to look at a graph, I didn't bring slides, but um, if you were to look at a graph, what's happened is over this time period, quantitative easing has continued collectively to rise because of that, because the European Central Bank pushed out its, its uh, program. So the Bank of Japan and the Fed just kind of hovered. So net-net, the three major central banks have done a lot more. The Bank of England has also continued with its, with its quantitative easing policy, just, just in a little bit of a smaller amount. That's the reason why I would have said, and I did a couple years ago, that there could have been a, a, a crisis more imminently if they really had tapered, if they really had stopped the process of quantitative easing. They knew this because it's obvious that this is what is holding up the markets and so therefore didn't. Which means the, the, the moment at which a crisis can happen is now the moment at which they either do stop, which they're not going to do collectively, or the level of debt out there, even at the cheap rate at which it was extended, is, is so... Uh, it hits against the fact that real companies and real governments can't necessarily service it even at low interest rates. So in other words, it's when the real economy um, meets up with the artificial quantitative easing economy. And this could take a long time. This is why they're not moving rates. So what needs to happen? Who can start that process? Well, the Fed has said it's going to start the process. Um, and every time it starts, a little bit it backs off or other central banks pile in. I think the Bank of England has a good opportunity to start that process because its amounts are lower and because it's more fused with the UK government. And so there could be a, a real utilization of, of its quantitative easing money. Um, so that could be something. But I think ultimately this is something 
So, so in those talks, in, in, in the G8, in, in, the, in the World Economic Forums, in all the places where all these central bankers and ministries of finance and, and treasury secretaries meet, they don't really talk about this exit plan. So one thing that really needs to happen is they need to have this conversation and they need to determine what it would really look like if they really backed off and what they could really do to utilize that money in a way that makes, unfortunately, the markets at least not crash because that hurts more people and more economies and also help the real economy they were supposed to help. So the conversation itself um, is not, you know, they talk about cryptocurrencies more than they talk about how to unwind this 10-year policy and that has to change. Thank you. Uh, I was just going to ask, uh, she was saying that the, the economy is not growing and uh, hasn't really grown for the last 10 years or so. So my question is, how, how, would, remo how would removing QE improve or, or lead to growth? And if we look at, for instance, Japan, I mean, how do we know this is not the new normal? How do we know that this is not what's going to happen? And then the other thing was, uh, again, removing it, QE did at least prevent the depression from happening, or that's the, the argument. So hasn't it helped in, in that sense? Thank you. Yeah, see, I, I feel it, it's not the... The removal would, would be very painful. I, I, think, I think what it needs is a, is a slow sort of diversion of, of, of the money that's already been made available through QE that hasn't gone into real growth. That idea of not having had strings attached from the beginning in terms of where this money goes to start attaching strings. And so to do the, 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 achieve the purpose, or at least to try to get to the real purpose and not just assume money's gonna go into the financial system and get to the real economy, but put it in the real economy. So for example, governments could, say the UK, um, could buy back a portion of the debt, that the bonds that are currently part of the QE system on the, on the, on the Bank of England's balance sheet, and reissue bonds, so QE stays the same, but those bonds go to real development or real growth or real small businesses or, or real, real something that's more attached to the foundation, more attached to the real economy than simply we're going to give it to you know, a major bank and we're going you know, to give it to HSBC. I mean, we're going to assume it, it's going to somehow make its way into there. actually have a policy that directs it. Thank you. Nasser Kalamun. Uh, my question about Bank of uh, International Settlements, uh, my belief it's like a think tank. It doesn't have teeth. What's your five proposals to make it have a teeth or have teeth? Well, and, uh, yeah, so, so the, bank, the Bank of International Settlements, it doesn't, it doesn't lend money. It doesn't decide on development projects. It doesn't decide on rates. What it does is it, is it analyzes the risk of the central bank community. Um, so so it, it could do more. It could actually be empowered to do... Um, it, it has good reports. I mean, it, it has basically over the last few years gone from supporting quantitative easing as a way to help the world economy from falling into a depression to being extremely critical of quantitative easing and, and there not being an exit plan. And the language in all of the reports of the BIS, particularly in the last few years, um, have changed significantly to, to be more warning. Um, but, but yes, they don't have the power to necessarily do anything. Um, the way to get, you know, that, that's, 
that's the structure of how the BIS was, was created. It does have a new head, um, and it does have people, for example, the, the head of the Central Bank of Mexico is now the head of the BIS, and, and it was, he was someone who was openly supportive of quantitative easing in the way it was offered, and then openly became more critical. Um, and so you need people like that to interact with the IMF, which they do, to interact with central bankers who might be more amenable uh, to adopting new policies or, or at least redirecting the money that they've, reject, that they've directed into the financial system. But you'd have to have a whole charter overhaul of the BIS, um, or it has to be done by individuals who meet all the time anyway, and having, as, as I was talking on, on your questions, there are, uh, an actual exit strategy that is as communal as the entry strategy was, but it's, it's not in their doctrine. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask you, regarding the no-strings-attached policies, has anything to do about the CEOs revolving doors, sort of going from Goldman Sachs to the government, to the Feds, around like that? Yeah, so, so Jamie Dimon, who's the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the banks I worked with that hasn't gone under, he was um, something called the Class A director at the New York Fed. So the, Fed, the Federal Reserve is basically 12... Uh, reserve banks that are part of the Federal Reserve System throughout the U.S., and they're in different cities. Um, so when the Fed was created in 1913, different cities had, they had you know, different economic uh, powers in the United States. One was New York, one San Francisco, Dallas, etc. So in New York, it's kind of the most important one because that's next to all the, the money. That's next to all the Wall Street banks. That's where all the relationships happen. And so one of the directors on the board of the New York Fed was Jamie Dimond at the time of the crisis. So he's not only in the room because his bank is one of the banks that's on the hook for money. I mean, one of the reasons J.P. Morgan Chase was involved in the crisis, for example, was they lent Lehman Brothers a whole pile of money. They lent Bear Stearns a whole pile of money with which to buy toxic assets. So like, they created assets, and then they lent money to uh, investment banks and communities and all sorts of places to, to, to buy them. And so when the assets didn't have any value, not only were they not able to be repaid, but those loans had to be repaid. Those banks were insolvent, uh, the ones that failed. Jamie Dimon's at the New York Fed saying to the president of the New York Fed, Tim Geithner, who <coughs> went to become the Treasury Secretary of the United States, and so now he's in two important positions over the period of a few months, um, where he has jurisdiction over helping the Wall Street banks that are still alive. Um, Jamie Dimon's in the room, or you know, one, of the, one of the directors at the time, and then he goes over to the Treasury Department where he continued to promote that policy throughout the Obama administration. So, and now he's kind of a, he's basically in the private sector at, at a sort of hedge fund-like thing. So, so these people do, do rotate through very senior positions at the institutions that, in this case, Jamie Dimon produced real crimes. I mean, that J.P. Morgan Chase has cop two felonies. They have been convicted um, in the Department of Justice, not actually in a courtroom, but they've had to pay and, and settle on acknowledging they've committed felonies by rigging rates. Um, so these are the people that are on the, at the table when things get negotiated. Jamie Dimon was considered by President Obama, President Obama's favorite banker. In fact, President Obama's own money was at Chase throughout this period. His own like, personal money, his like asset assets were managed by J.P. Morgan Chase at this time. When President Trump came into the, into the White House, 
Jamie Dimon was one of the first picks for his business advisory council. So yeah, this is just one guy. But I mean, you have the same person who's involved with the Federal Reserve System, runs the largest bank in the United States, um, is involved on the business council for the, the Republican president, and is the favorite banker of the Democratic president through that, this entire time period. And it's not a wonder um, why money is made available to his bank and banks like his. Um, do we have time for one more question? How's Okay, one more question. Um. Thank you very much. Um, when you talk about sort of central bank independence, um, do you think, to what extent do you think, well, nowadays obviously most central banks operate independently, um, as in they're, they're unelected, they're accused of being technocratic. Um, to what extent would you changing around the governance, governance structures be a solution here? So in terms of the structure, at least the transparency of the structures, most people um, who are even experiencing economic anxiety or, or wages that aren't keeping up with costs and so forth and just realize something's wrong but don't sit there and connect it to central banks, um, should be at least informed, I think, of, of what's going on. There's no real transparency. I mean, the ECB, as I mentioned, has a report as to what they buy and where. But there's no real transparency. It's not really covered by the news as to what um, central banks have done with this money and who has actually received it. So there's no real audit process um, for central banks. So there's no real public knowledge. So you have these people that are appointed um, in different ways. Here they're appointed directly. In the U.S. they're appointed through uh, you know, congressional acceptance or rejection, but there's never a rejection. So there's people that are appointed to run these so-called independent institutions that are just not independent. They're, they're, they're connected to the government from the beginning. And yet, what they've done with the money hasn't necessarily benefited what the government is supposed to be doing for its citizens. It's benefited a small sector of, of the private market and the markets themselves. So the idea of independence, um, if it were really true, um, could be beneficial. Auditing is, is required. I think the public needs to know what's gone on and what's going on with that money. Um, I think these people should actually be elected. I mean, they could, the, the money that has been produced by, central, by some of the major central banks um, eclipses the, the surplus of any, of any government. Um, so, so I think that's another way to sort of tie them in. But right now, even though they're technically independent, some of them, some aren't, they, don't, they act in a way that benefits a sector of the market and not the general sector of citizens. All right, great. So... To conclude, I would like to thank all of you for uh, coming. I would like to remind you that you can buy the book, Conclusion, outside and get assigned. And finally, please join me in thanking our speaker one more time.